0: Good evening, everyone. Again, it's a joy to have you here. Uh, we're going to do a little Bible study tonight, uh, which I'd like to focus on on Sunday evenings. But as I promised this morning, I'd like to begin by asking if you have any questions or comments concerning the message this morning. Any comments, any questions concerning the Word? Verse 5 um
1: no, 8. He said, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commandments, then even your exile people are of... If you... Your exiled people are at the farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place. Right. I have chosen as a dwelling for my name's sake. Um, it's an observation, also a question. Some often we use that, that as scripture for the now, the people who are scattered throughout the
0: world. Because the prayer is still being answered.
1: It's still in process. It's a revelation. Is this a progressive revelation or is it prophecy? Progressive um, prophecy?
0: Well, Pro- yes, exactly. And we'll see that again in the night when we look at Second Chronicles as well. The same promise is given. And that is still in the process of happening, of being answered
1: and as another observation is that the same god who um sovereign lord who scattered them because of um their disobedient it's the same god who would bring them back if
0: under conditions they, under
1: conditions if they obey
0: and that's what's going to happen you see when the, you bring in the uh the um, The great tribulation, Mm -hmm. that's also as a part of that because God is going to punish his people for disobedience. But in the end of that, they're going to be crying out to him. If you go to Isaiah 52, you will see where the nation turns to God, acknowledges Christ as the Messiah, and then he brings in the kingdom. So that's right. that's That's a good observation there. Thank you. Any other questions? Comments? No one else? All right. Well, let's um, turn to Second Chronicles, because I'll be talking about that passage, as I promised today, because we're still talking about the why for the call for 40 days of prayer. We're going to continue on that theme, for a while. Now, of course, the passage is Second Chronicles chapter 7, and especially verse 14, you know it well, I'm sure. Um, but I think we want to look at it in a new light tonight if we can. In Second Chronicles um, 7 and 14 is the verse that we normally go to here. It says, um, if my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, what is not normally recognized there is the fact that this actually is an answer to Solomon's prayer. Solomon actually prayed for this. God is answering his prayer. Now, if you read chapters 6 and 7, I think you will be thrilled with what you read. It's one of the most beautiful, awesome passages in the Word of God. This the context has to do with the dedication of the temple. And that whole story, of course, is a wonderful one as well. You know, David was the one who wanted to build the temple for God. God says, no, I would not let you do that because you are a man of war. You have too much blood on your hands. But he allowed David to collect all of the resources for the building, and he left the actual building to his son, Solomon. Now, Solomon uh, uh, built his temple, and you just have to read it to see how Tremendous and how awesome this building was. But in chapter six, we have the story of the dedication. In verse 12, it says of second chronicles, chapter six, then he stood before that Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now Solomon had made a bronze platform. That's what we call a pulpit today. Five cubits long five cubits wide, and three cubits high. That's like seven by seven by four or five. And he had this set in the midst of the court, and he stood on it, knelt on his knees in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth, keeping covenant and showing loving kindness to your servants who walked before you with all their heart, who has kept with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him. Indeed, you have spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, keep with your servant David, my father, that which you have promised him, saying, notice now, you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel if only your sons take heed to their way to walk in my way and walk in my law as you have walked before me. That's the first prayer request that he makes, that the descendants of David, his father, his descendants might go on and on. Verse 17. Now therefore, O Lord, the God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David. In other words, God, please keep your promise to allow descendants of David to go on and on. Now when you go to chapter 7, you look at verse 18 especially, you'll see God answers that prayer. Then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments which I have set before you, And go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given you. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. As for this house, which was exalted, everyone who passed by it will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? And they will say, because they forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who brought them from the land of Egypt, and they adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this adversity on them. This is a magnificent statement and Revelation here. This wonderful event of the dedication of this magnificent temple, God said, this is only going to stand as long as you obey me and you honor me. But If you turn away from me, turn to other gods, and you disregard my word, All of this will be destroyed. And of course we know that's exactly what happened. So, God answered the prayer of of Solomon as one. But now let's go on. Go back to verse 18 of chapter 6. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. O oh Lord, my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays for you. So he is asking, he is begging, he is pleading for God to answer his prayer. That your eye may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place of which you have said that you would put your name there, to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Now remember... This temple was a place that symbolized the presence of God. It was there that God said he would meet with his people. It was there that the people would come there to pray. This is where we get the idea, by the way, of when Jewish people uh, uh, are away from Jerusalem and they pray, they always face towards Jerusalem because that's where the temple was and that's where God said he was. Now, of course, today, the temple of God is not a building. You and I who have the Spirit of God indwelling us, we are the individual temples of God, temple of God as well as the church of Jesus Christ. And we must remember that. And so the things which are said concerning this physical temple, we could apply in a spiritual way to us as individuals and to the church of Jesus Christ as well. He goes on. And he names, I don't want to go through it, but from verse 22 to verse 42, the rest of the chapter, He names specific sins. He says, now, God, if this happens and our people turn away and they come to you, please hear them. Let me read a couple of them. Verse 22. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then hear from heaven and act and judge your servants, punishing the wicked by bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous By giving him according to his righteousness. Then verse 24. If your people Israel are defeated before an enemy. Because they have sinned against you. And they return to you. And confess your name. And pray and make supplication before you in this house. Then hear from heaven. And forgive the sin of your people Israel. And bring them back to the land which you have given to them. And to their fathers. And he goes on. There are at least seven different things that he specifically says. If your people do this, and they come and they repent, they confess their sins, please forgive them, please listen to them. Now when we come to verse 14 of chapter 7, we have God's response to that. And you have to see it in its context to get the power and beauty of this passage. Note, he says, let's begin with verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. So he's telling Solomon, I am answering, I am responding to your prayer. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So God says, I will answer your prayer specifically. Just as you ask, I will answer if the conditions are met. And sometimes we neglect those conditions and think that God is just going to uh, come and bless us in a situation when we don't put him first and so on. But God has conditions for answered prayer. And that is seen throughout this passage. So let's look at this verse. We're going to break it down a little bit tonight. Uh, I'm going to look at three aspects of it. We call the promise in verse thir- in verse 13. In fact, all of it in verse 14. And then uh, the action that must be taken, and then the response that God will make if those actions are taken. Let's f- look at the first voice which says, "If my people, who are called by my name, we must." underline this fact here. This message is addressed to the people of God. This message is not addressed to the sinner, the pagan who does not know God. It is addressed to the people of God. It's important for us to understand that. Notice what he says, my people. God wants us to know where we come from. You know that phrase? Remember where you're from? I remember when I was a boy uh, my mom used to be very careful about the underclothes I put on. I remember one day clearly. She says, "I was put on this shirt and it was dirty." She said, "Boy, go change that shirt. Go put on a clean shirt." I said, "Ma, nobody can see this. It's under my shirt." He said, "You go there. You get knocked down. They take you to the hospital. They take off your shirt and they can see your dirty shirt and they can blame me for that." He said, "You remember where you come from." You see. And this is what God is telling us here. Remember who you come from. Remember who you belong to. My people. God is, we could say, is proud of calling us his people. My people. This speaks of an endearment. This is a very precious thing here. If my people, not the pagans out there, not those who know, but my people. If my people. And God wants us to recognize who, today we could say, who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. And he emphasizes the need for us to know our position in Christ and to know what it means to be a Christian. Because the next thing he says, who are called by my name. Now we talked about this a little bit this morning. My people who are called by my name this focuses upon himself. He is concerned about his reputation, who he is as God. And even when we read Psalm 23, we have the same situation. Uh, Jesus, of course, is the great shepherd. He says, "He says he leads you through green pastures for what? For His name's sake, to maintain His reputation. If He doesn't care for His people, His reputation is marred. And so He is careful to guard His reputation, and He wants us, as His people, to realize that because we belong to Him, we cannot use His name flippantly." Now, I mentioned this morning, and sometimes it don't apply it in this fashion, but when God says that you should not use the Lord's name in vain, many times as Christians, we use God's name in vain when we say we are Christians and we live like the devil. You see, people who get up and say, God told me this, and he didn't tell them that, they're using God's name in vain. They're trying to hook on, as it were, to his reputation, who he is, and God says, There's no profit in doing that, you cannot do that. And he wants us to realize that because we belong to him, we must live a certain way. We must live to reflect who he is. We must not use the Lord's name in vain. Don't say that we are God's people, don't say that we are Christians, Christians, and then we live like the devil, it just don't go together. So remember this, this is to God's people. We have a tendency today to look around us and see all the violence and crime and everything and we blame those sinners out there. But if you read scriptures, God doesn't do that so much. He, most of the times he blamed God's people for the situation that is around us. For instance, in 2 Timothy, where he admonishes us to pray for those who rule over us. Isn't that right? Why? So that we might live a peaceful life. Peaceful and tranquil life in all godliness. The implication of the scripture, the teaching of that is that peace in the streets depends upon the people of God praying for those in leadership over us. Important thing, a judgment, my friends, begins in the house of God. The writer of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's addressed to Christians. That's not addressed to the unbeliever. This is another thing, the way we use scripture so flippantly without really... Uh, seeing the context or using it for what it is. He's talking about holiness of living. He talks about God disciplining his children. Why? Because he loves us. That's why he disciplines us. There's no more punishment for sin. Jesus took care of that. But there is discipline for sin. When we disobey the word of God, God disciplines us. I like to illustrate discipline in the Christian like a bit in a house, in a horse's mouth. Um You're you you going along and you want to go in a different direction. You want a horse to go straight ahead, but he wants to go left and go to right. What do you do? You pull the bit. Now, what is that bit? That bit causes a little bit of pain in the mouth of the horse that causes him to go in the direction that you're pulling. That's what happens when God disciplines us. He pulls in the bit, as it were, to get us back on the road. And that's what discipline is, to put us back on the right track. It isn't punishment. It is to get us back into fellowship with God. And uh, it's important for us to remember here. This is addressed to God's people. If we want to see a change in our community and in our church, it begins with us, not the people outside there, not those sinners out there. It begins with us. We are God's people. We are called by his name. Let us live in such a way that we do not in any way diminish his reputation. Amen? But then he goes on. That's, he wants us to understand that we belong to him. But then, he gives four points of action that we must take. If my people who are called by my name, notice that if is the conditional clause we call it, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Four action steps we must take. Let's look at them one by one. We must humble ourselves. This way begins, no genuine prayer can occur unless we take a humble position. Why? Because prayer in itself is a mission that God is greater than us and that we need God. We are dependent upon him. Prayer to God is saying that we need you. We cannot do anything without you. It's a humbling of ourselves before God. But unfortunately for many Christians, and I put myself in this, being humbling ourselves before God is some of the most difficult thing to do. Because we don't want to accept responsibility or blame for anything. It's always the other person. We always believe that the other person is fault. It's his sin, her sin, her failure, not mine. Many times though we have to humble ourselves and say, hey, it is my fault. I'm the one who is responsible for this. I must take the responsibility for this. This is an idea of realizing that God is the Omnipotent One as we saw in Nehemiah today. He is the sovereign God. We must bow before Him in humility. When we take the right position, then we will see that the only place we can go is to prayer. Because when we come to realize our dependency upon God, it causes us to cry out to Him. And that is what's happening here. Humble themselves and pray. And pray. That's the second one. Humble ourselves and pray. We must pray. But pray with a sense of humility. Pray with a sense of contriteness as we've been praying tonight, uh, singing tonight. Pray with a sense of brokenness before God. Sometimes I listen to people pray, And and I said, Lord, I hope I don't pray in this fashion. And it's like he's preaching to God, shouting at God, you know. And I is that a prayer? Is that the kind of prayer that shows humility and contriteness? And I always pray, Lord, help me not to do that kind of a thing. Because God wants us to show respect for him as the God who is in control of everything. We must pray. Prayer begins with a realization that, God is greater than we are, that we are absolutely dependent upon him for everything, no matter how smart we may be, no matter how rich we may be, no matter what position we may have, we need God. We are completely dependent upon him. That takes an attitude of humility, of brokenness. And beloved, we need more of that in our assembly. I know I need more of that in my own life. There's no doubt about that. And We must, I believe, like we've got from the passage in Nehemiah today, when we come to pray, we first focus on who it is that we're praying to. The Almighty God, the Holy God, the Majestic God, the All-Powerful God, the All-Knowing God, the All-Present God. We must recognize who it is that we're praying to and give him the kind of worship that is due to him before we ask anything, before we request anything. We should praise him. We must worship him. So first you humble ourselves and then we pray. Now this has to do... Now first of all, humbling has to do with our attitude. Praying has to do with restoring communication. If you read this passage here, you'll see that. If my people commit certain sins and they confess their sins and so on, then I will answer because the communication has been broken. Prayer has to do with restoring communication between us and God. Not only with us speaking, but God hearing and responding. We must humble ourselves, we must pray. And he says, seek my face. Now this is a very important one. I believe this has to do with striving after holiness. Striving after holiness. Seeking his face has the idea of being in his presence. Having an intimate relationship with him. Seeing him eye to eye as it were. God says that we must strive after holiness. We must seek his face. Now notice, there's effort there. We must seek his face. We may go after it, but this is an action step we must take. All of these are action steps, but especially this one, seeking a closeness for God, of God, a nearness to God. You know, like the psalmist says, we should come in that position always where he says, as the deer panted after the water broke. So pants my heart, O God, after thee. That's the kind of heart that God wants us to have, a longing to be in his presence. Actually, we are always there to be aware of his presence. God is always with us. It's just a matter of being aware of his presence. When we are arguing with one another, God is there. If we are aware of his presence, we wouldn't argue the way we do. When we're fighting with one another and backbiting and all of those things, if we become aware of his presence, we wouldn't do those things. We need to seek the face of God. We need to understand that coming close to God is not just clapping and shouting and hollering and having all these, you know, magnificent concerts to get you excited. I'm not saying that is wrong, mind you. But I'm saying that what God is talking about here is a closeness with himself, a nearness with himself that causes you to realize that he's always there with you and that therefore your attitude will always be one of brokenness, of humility and so on, and of prayer. And then he goes on, he says, and turn from their wicked ways. This is the fourth step. Turn from your wicked ways. This is repentance. It isn't enough just to come out to prayer meeting. If we know that we have sinned against someone, if we know that we are involved in sinful behavior, we've got to turn away from it. We've got to change our minds about it. We've got to change our attitudes and our actions. God has to see us turning daily away from sin in our lives. That's an indication that we're drawn closer to him. We cannot draw close to God if we have sin in our lives. And there's so many ways we can... Um, have sin come into our lives on an ongoing basis, what we watch on TV, where we go for our pleasures and everything else. All of those things, uh, are indications of how close we are to God and if we are yearning to be in his presence and to seek his face at all times. We must turn away from our sin. If you know that you have hurt somebody and you have not asked forgiveness, you need to do that. You need to do that if you are going to get close to God. We have these prayer meetings hoping and praying that God will work in our hearts in such a way that there will be no nothing between any of us in this assembly against the other person. We're holding no grudges. We're holding no complaints. We are not in any way causing a conflict at all. This is what we're praying for. This is how we seek God's face. This is how we humble ourselves before him We have to turn away from our pride and our selfishness and our greed. We have to turn away from the things that keep us away from seeking the face of God. You know, I mentioned, and I don't want to keep mentioning this, but it comes to mind because it has to do with worship. I mentioned about the choir again. You know, why is it that we cannot get our people involved in singing? Which is a way of worshiping God, isn't that right? What is it? I mean, what do we have to do? We have churches who pay people to come in to sing and to play organs, you know, and pianos. You know that, eh? Profession. They come in to pay. Do we have to get to that stage? I trust not, because I certainly wouldn't agree to pay anybody to come to sing, or to, and would not. Not you don't give them an honorarium now again, you know, but I'm just saying, God's people should be in such a relationship with him, that they seek ways of praising him. And if they could sing, that's one way of doing it. And that holds true in every other aspect of the ministry. We need people to work with a wanna. We need people to work with Sunday school. We need people to work with in as much. We need people involving the media. All kinds of needs for people. And it don't have to cost you anything, mind you. It's just an opportunity there for you to show God that you love him, You want to honor him in your life. I'm wondering, why doesn't it happen? Why doesn't it happen? I believe, for one thing, it's because we're not humbling ourselves before him. We're putting our own personal desires and our own personal um, enjoyment before God. And that has to stop if we are really going to seek the face of God. Now notice, then he goes on and he says that he will do three things. I will hear from heaven. I will hear your prayer. What a promise this is. What an assurance it is to have God says, I will hear your prayer. But now he only says that if we meet these four conditions, first of all. This has to do with communication again, restoring communication with God. In other words, the prayer will now be two-way in one sense. I will listen to you. I will hear your prayer and I will respond. Wouldn't it be good to know that every time we pray that we know that God will answer? Well, if we meet his conditions, we can have that assurance. We can have that assurance. I will hear your prayer. In fact, this is what he is doing right now in response to Solomon's prayer. He is hearing Solomon's prayer. He is answering it. I will hear your prayer. That's number one. That has to do with communication restoration. I will forgive your sin. Now, in the context, you'll see that confession has to come before forgiveness. Confession has to come before forgiveness. Again, this has nothing to do with the penalty of sin. This has to do with fellowship with God, fellowship with Jesus Christ, fellowship with the Holy Spirit. I will forgive your sin. I believe that one of the greatest spiritual setbacks we have as Christians is living with unforgiven sin. And the reason why it's unforgiven is because we don't confess it. And not only confessing to God, you know, we go to James. James talks about confessing sins to one another. He says, If anybody's sick among you and everything, you remember that passage? He says, confess your sins one to another. That's important. I that don't mean that you confess your sins to be forgiven uh, as far as God is concerned, but as far as Brother and sister is concerned, confession of sin is necessary. And they're in the context of whether or not a person will be healed or not. Perhaps a lot of people are sick simply because of the fact that they haven't confessed their sin or they haven't forgiven somebody who has confessed their sin to them. That has to be put in there. That's why whenever pastors are called to go to pray for someone, what we would do first is gather together as pastors and we would confess our sins making sure that as much as we know, we don't harbor sins when we go to pray for a person. You see? I will forgive your sins. Confession of sin is essential to experience the forgiveness of God in our lives. But then he gives another one. I will heal their land. When I was studying this, it struck me. Very rarely do we associate Things that happen in creation. Because the land, let's talk about creation now. First you had communication, you had confession of sin for forgiveness. Uh, You have now dealing with creation. I will heal your land. For instance, look at all of the things that are happening in the States now. Fires, floods, drought. Do you hear anybody associating that with sin? Very rarely. And if they do, people will laugh at them. People will mock them. Isn't that right? But according to this text, a lot of things that happen to creation in the land is because of the sin of God's people, not the sin of the pagan, mind you, although that's included. But in this context, it has to do with the sin of God's people. When he Israel healed the land, now we believe it has specific reference to the Promised Land. All right, but there were more than believers living in the land; it was unbelievers as well. So they were getting the uh, they were getting the judgment for the sin of God's people. The same thing with Jonah. Remember Jonah? Why did the people run through all our trouble because of Jonah's sin? And many times the unbeliever is punished for the sin of the believer, Of the believer, and that should not be. That should not happen. That is when we show disregard for the name of Jesus Christ, the name of God. And we use his name in vain. So you have a promise. If my people who are called by my name. Will do four things. Here. Four things. One. What? Humble themselves. Pray. Seek my face. Turn from the sins. That's the condition. Then I will do what? And heal the land. But the last three responses will not occur unless the four steps of action is taken on our part. Beloved, that's where we are now. And that's what I'm praying for in these 40 days of prayer, that we will experience God working in our lives by his spirit. There'll be a sense of brokenness, a sense of contriteness, and to, and to perhaps admit that perhaps he wasn't given, we haven't been given the spirit of God enough room in our Assembly to do what he wants. Maybe we're depending too much on what we think we should could do. And we are. Look at it now. I mean, just look at how we have allowed things of the world to come into our church life. In other words, now whether you have a successful service, the standards now has to do with how does it stand up to what's happening out there. What kind of sound do you have is it really great. If the sound isn't wonderful and everything else. then, Hey, what am I coming to church for? Or if everybody doesn't have a microphone to sing, or if you don't have all these things and instruments and all of that, then we cannot do what God wants. That's not true. That's not true. Those are the things that we have adapted from the world system. Our standard for evaluating whether or not God is working in our life now is not focused on spiritual things, but on outward things, on events, on happenings, rather than a transformed life. And that's what I am praying for, that God will so work in our lives that we will see each of us being transformed day by day into the image and to the likeness of Jesus Christ. The promise my people who are called by my name, the action here, Will uh, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from the wicked ways. Then he says, I will hear, I will forgive, and I will heal the land. And by the way, look at this personally in your life as well. How many times, for instance, that you get into some real serious trouble? You're driving down the road, you get in an accident. Oh, my gracious, because my brakes went out or my tire was not good or everything else. You ever thought sometimes that perhaps that's God speaking to you because of sin in your life? See, we don't associate events in our lives too much with spiritual things. We we, we become so in tune to the world now. It happened to everybody, so... You know, it happens to me, so it can't be anything different. But that's not true. We bear the name of Jesus Christ. Everything that happens to our lives is allowed by the Spirit of God to happen. Isn't that right? And we have to become more sensitive to what God is doing. Remember the Corinthians. They were dying off in the church. That's when old age, or he has this illness, or he has that sickness, or everything else. God says, no, I'm taking you home. Because you don't treat one another properly. That's right. I'm taking you home because you don't treat one another properly and then you come before the Lord's table. I can't take that. We have to try to become more spiritually discerning to see what God is doing in life. How is he doing it? Why are certain things happening in our lives? Is it because of sin? Is it because of a lack of forgiveness? Is it because of a lack of humility in our lives? And I believe we become more sensitive as we seek his face and we seek to live a holy lifestyle. Amen?